The book of Acts, and we are working our way through this incredible book, and um, I know it's a book that we've all kind of grown up with, and it's been there, and we've thought through things when we've, uh, when we've studied God's Word, we refer to the book of Acts. Um, this is the first time that I've actually preached through the book of Acts, so for me, this has been a real joy. And it's a, it's a book that's really at the heart of the New Testament because everything kind of either heads into it or leads out of it, right? And so it's really, really essential. And we're in this really important and powerful passage um, on the conversion of Saul, who would then be the Apostle Paul. And so we want to um, read this passage and go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his wisdom and guidance for our time this morning. So stand with me, if you would. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, and um, then we'll pray and jump into the passage. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice But seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise. And go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Lord, we ask for your help as we come to this passage. Lord, we are, we are desperate for you to be at work in our lives in such a way that you're growing us and you're strengthening us, Lord. So what we, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us, please? 
What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And what we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow me as your messenger to be the, the means by which you are proclaiming your truth to your people so that they can grow to become your like your son, Jesus Christ. And for those who may not know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, they would be captivated by the truth of your gospel. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Sunday, September 8th, 1816, Jane Austen wrote to her sister Cassandra. It's a very long letter, lots of details, pretty chatty in there. But one of the nuggets she says along the way is this. We do not much like Mr. Cooper's sermons. They are fuller of regeneration and conversion than ever. And friends, what's interesting about that is that the editor of Jane's letters, he notes this, Jane found her cousin, her cousin's enthusiastic piety rather excessive. But friends, the, the reality is, as we've been reading through the book of Acts, there's been a lot of regeneration. There's been a lot of conversion. This is Christianity 101. It involves regeneration, conversion. This is what the gospel is all about. And friends, as we come to Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, which we have done so already, we've, we've come in particular to three conversion stories. Let me just remind you of where we've been. We looked at Simon the sorcerer who, who went through the motions of conversion, but we found out that he actually was a false convert. Then last week, we saw um, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We found out that he was a foreign convert. And now, as we encounter probably the most famous convert in the history of the church, it's Saul, whom Christ would choose to be Paul the apostle. And what Luke is telling us in this text, in the midst of great ex or gospel explosion, there is also gospel persecution. And it's a perspective that's helpful here, friends. The gospel... Uh, explosion is taking place in Israel, moving from Jerusalem to Judea and ultimately to the Gentiles. In the midst of that, though, there is great persecution. These things are all happening at the same time, right? And so the unfolding, in the unfolding drama of the spread of the gospel, here's what he wants us to see, that Jesus can radically save the most unlikely person. And friends, we need to hear this. If I were to ask you, in your thinking, in your estimation of humankind, who is the most unlikely to be converted? Or who would be the most unlikely to become a Christian? What would your answer be? Luke's answer is Saul of Tarsus. Saul is a most unlikely Christian. But so am I. And so are you. The truth is, friends, that Jesus is sovereignly at work bringing the most unlikely individual into his church. And so as we move through this text, we're going to encounter an unlikely conversion, an unlikely commission, and then we're going to finish up with an unlikely confession. And friends, we are so familiar with Paul. We quote Paul all the time. Why? Because he's written so many letters. He's so much a part of the fabric of the, the church to the Gospels in particular, or to, to the Gentiles in particular. 
that we, we you know, he just rolls off our lips. But, but this passage is, is the, the beginnings of who Saul is. We want to make sure that we see this. So notice, first of all, an unlikely conversion. And I want us to, to be mindful of the fact that even Saul himself says that he is the worst of sinners. And his life up to this point in more recent days has been an amazing horror. Let's just read again what it says here in verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, friends, Saul here is is thinking of himself as a righteous man. He sees his zeal against Christians, these people of the way, as a righteous and just act against those who oppose God. And so with that begins Operation Destroy the Church. And it's in full force right now. Now, if we take a moment to look at the words that are used to describe Saul's attitude and behavior, in particular toward those who are Christians, in the three accounts of his conversion. By the way, we have an account here. There's another account in chapter 22 where Paul is reflecting back. And we have another count in chapter 26. So if you take all three of those and you kind of bring them together, here are the words that describe his attitude and his behavior. We'll see how horrible and evil this man really was. So like a wolf, chapter 8, verse 3, if you remember, when he's interacting, he's there while, while um, Stephen is being uh, murdered. He is ravaging the church, we're told. He's breathing threats and murder in chapter 9, verse 1, we saw that. It speaks to his ad, the attitude of his heart. This is what he's seeking to do. He's rooting out Christians and dragging them to Jerusalem, we find in, in verse 2. He's persecuting the church, the way, to death, chapter 22, verse 4. He's binding and delivering both men and women to prison, chapter 22, verse 4. He's casting his vote with the chief priests when the saints were put to death, Chapter 26, verse 10. He's going outside of Israel into foreign cities to to persecute Christians. We see that in chapter 26 also. And then finally, he's trying to make Christians blaspheme in the synagogues. Now, let me just kind of paint the picture of that. He would literally go into a synagogue where Christians were still gathering in synagogues, worshiping. They were worshiping the God of, of Israel. Why? Because Christianity is the natural outgrowth of that. So that's why they're there. And when he goes in there, he demands that all that are followers of the way identify themselves. And if they don't, they are blaspheming. You see, that's the idea. He's going into synagogues, he's exposing the people for who they are, and he's dragging them into prison. And he has no qualms about putting them to death. He is a champion against Christianity. He's a champion against Christ. So Saul is a wolf. He's a monster organizing and orchestrating a a terrible horror on the followers of Christ, the saints, we're told here, who, who name the name of Jesus, who are part of what was called the way. He was a ruthless monster 
who raged havoc against the Christians, but believed fully that he was doing the will of God. That's a perspective we need to see. You see, he wanted, in one sense, to be like the sons of Levi. Remember the sons of Levi? When Moses comes down from the mountain and there's the golden calf, Moses gets the sons of Levi and says, you go sick those people who are responsible for this. 3,000 men are killed. He he wants to be like the the, the zeal of Phineas. If you remember uh, this Midianite, I think it was, woman, and an Israelite man had, had come together sexually, uh, offending the Lord, and he goes through with a spear and he, all right? He is acting as a judge. This is what Paul thinks that he's doing. He thinks he's acting righteously. His, his, his righteousness is evidenced by his zeal for God. And his zeal and his atrocities would be considered in the same breath as Hitler and Goebbels, Stalin and Mussolini, and you can add names to that. This is who this man is. He's a wolf. He's a terror against Christians. But, although Saul is a wolf and a monster opposed to Christ and the church, he will be the recipient of an amazing grace. So we've seen already that Saul is the worst of sinners. Now we're seeing that Saul is the recipient of grace, an amazing grace. And the divine encounter can be summarized under three headings. We'll just take one at a time here. What he sees. What does he see while he's on the way? He sees a light. In one of the other passages, he he says, as he's recalling, it was brighter than the sun. And this was happening at noon. So when, when the sun is up in the sky in its brightest way, the light that he's experiencing actually is eclipsing the light of the sun. That's how bright it is. And friends, this is, this is really helpful for us to understand the incredible glory of God. It's not just that God is shining, you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to... no. This is God breaking in. He is brighter than any brightness you can imagine. I remember, uh, you know, when I was young, my mom saying, don't look into the sun. You will damage your eyes if you look in the sun. I'm, you know, as a kid, I'm thinking I'm supposed to look with my eyes. Why wouldn't I look into the sun? Or if you are, have ever either been involved in welding or you see welding take place, you never look at the weld. Why? Because it's so bright. It can damage your eyes. This light was so bright that it was powerful, friends. And what we find here is it comes suddenly. Now hear this. Saul now sees the glory of God whom he claims to worship in the face of Jesus whom he zealously hates. This is the glory of God. Now friends, here Saul himself will tell us that the light was so bright, so powerful, so overwhelming that it knocked him to the ground. Now he's fully aware that he's in the presence of some higher being, I would think the glory of God or think the awareness of God, but he doesn't know yet that this is a Christophany, that this is Christ. And that's going to shake him silly in just a minute. That's what he sees. Now notice what he hears. He hears a voice. And we're going to find this is the voice of Christ. If the light wasn't enough to get his attention, 
and for him to realize that he was in the presence of God, while he's falling to the ground, he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? Now, often in the Old Testament, when a name is mentioned twice, it is an expression of emotion, but also a, 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 a deeply personal expression. So we have to think that God is, is speaking to, 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 to Saul here in such a way as to, to gather his attention, but also to bring some comfort in what's going on. It says, now Saul asked, he does ask two questions, but after this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, first of all, says, who are you, Lord? Now, don't take this necessarily as him recognizing that this is Jesus. What he's recognizing here, that there is, there's an authority. This word Lord has a very large kind of a wide array of meanings. It can go from Sir to Yahweh, okay? So clearly Saul knows that he's in the presence of an authority, so he, he speaks with respect, but then he gets his answer, and this is where things start to hit the fan. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, friends, you've got to put this in some perspective, right? He, his whole being, his whole essence, his, his whole persona has been, I'm out to get the followers of the way. I will root them out. I will arrange for their rooting out. I will arrange for them to be taken back to Jerusalem so that they can be executed. I'm all a part of this. And now on the road, as he sees the bright light and he hears this voice and he's asking the first question, who are you, Lord? The answer is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's a shocking revelation. I really appreciate what a commentator, Bruce Milne, says here. He captures it very well. All the self-erected walls of resistance and rationalization, all the fermenting, driving anger, burning in his spirit against these hated, heretical Nazarenes, all collapsed and disintegrated into a thousand pieces before the bedrock fact, which now broke upon his consciousness with the force of a sword, Jesus is Alive. Jesus is in divine or is in divine glory. These Christians, Stephen, they're right after all. They've all been right all along. Jesus truly is the Messiah, and we rejected and killed him. The Nazarene's way is right. It's God's way. It's the fulfillment we have been waiting for all these centuries. We cannot oppose it and succeed. I've been utterly mistaken. This is the truth. I must embrace it. But what have I done? Persecute me? Horrible, terrible thing. Jesus is with them and in them. The Nazarenes are his precious people, and I've been killing and imprisoning and hurting them, hurting him. Now you just got to, again, put that in perspective. It isn't, it isn't interesting that the first words out of the mouth of Jesus both shatter and reframe Saul's world. And immediately they teach Saul something about Christ's relationship with his church, right? When you persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. And here Christ identifies with his bride, and we have the, the first inklings of the concept of the body of Christ of which he is the head. 
You touch my body, you're touching me. And so what we find is that he asks another question. It's not in our text. It's actually in chapter 22 and verse 10 as Paul is sharing the testimony of what happened on the the road. And he says that he actually asks another question right at this point. And that second question is, what shall I do, Lord? Well, yeah, you have been fighting against your very own creator. You've been fighting against the one you said you're championing for. But you've been wrong. And he says, what shall I do? And Saul's two questions, friends, must be answered before you can become a Christian. Who are you, Lord? You must recognize him as Lord. What must I do? You must submit your life to him as Lord. There is no, hey, I want my ticket to heaven, and then someday I'll actually commit my life to the Lord. No. Conversion is conversion. You're moving from darkness into light. You're not kind of somehow you know, wallowing in between. He is Lord. Whether you embrace that or not, to be converted, you recognize that he is Lord. All right? Friends, what Saul is being convicted of is much more than being a violent, murderous ringleader against the church. He's convicted of fighting against the very God that he intends to serve. If his second question must contemplate, it must have caused him to contemplate the fear, at least potential fear, of divine judgment. If I've been guilty of fighting against God, of murdering God, then I'm in big trouble. (laughs) So think about it again. Here's the question. What must I do? What can I do? The answer that Jesus gives is, submit your life to what I'm about to tell you. And friends, it's a reminder to us that we're not saved from being good people. And through the gospel, somehow God makes us better people. No, we are vile sinners. We are enemies of God, shaking our very fists at him but enemies who have been reconciled through Christ. Paul himself tells us our condition. This is Colossians 1, 22. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So do you truly embrace Paul's description here, that you were alienated? that you were doing evil deeds. You might agree with those two things, but maybe you wrestle with you were hostile in mind. Your heart and your orientation was against God. That's Paul's description of you and me and himself. Do you believe that is true about you? Well, the Lord Jesus gives the murderous and persecuting Saul a gracious response. Notice verse 6, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now friends, Jesus would have been just if he chose to end Saul's life there and then. But he is great, a gracious Savior and he has plans for Saul. So this is what he's seen, what he's heard, Now, I want you to notice what he experiences. 
He's seen a light. He's heard a voice. Now he experiences a humiliation. But before Luke reveals that, before he he gets to that, he wants us to know for certain that what has been going on with Saul is not somehow a personal vision or a dream. Like like Saul's just experiencing this phenomena, this this metaphysical thing, you know, and and no one else is affected by it. This is all just going on in his head. No, 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 no. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, seeing no one doesn't mean that they're not seeing the bright light. It just means they can't see the person who's actually speaking. In other words, his companions heard the voice, but they don't, they don't see anyone, they, they, they don't see anyone speaking, but it's clear that in that experience, they are experiencing something great and something unusual. So much so that they're speechless. Something powerful is happening. They don't exactly know what's going on, but they know that it's affecting their leader, Saul. So how does Saul experience that humiliation? Three things. He's humbled by the truth. And what would be the truth that he's humbled by here? That Jesus is truly resurrected. That he has been wrong, as we would say today. He's on the wrong side of history. That the way which he has been persecuting is actually right. That Jesus is truly Israel's Messiah. He's humbled by that truth. He's also humbled by the blindness. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. There's great symbolism here, isn't there? Saul has been zealous for God, but ignorant of truth. He was the, the bull of Jewish zeal, headed to be the dread of Damascus for any follower of Christ. But now the hunter has been hunted by Christ. And he's humbled by being led into Damascus. Here he is, is the guy, now being helped into the city. Friends, clearly over the next few days, he'll have time to contemplate, won't he? He'll contemplate his rebellion against God, his blindness, wondering whether or not it would be taken away from him or or changed. He's contemplating his humiliated status. It says, verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. See, God is doing something here in a number of different ways. And he wants Saul to be pondering his situation. He wants Saul to be pondering what he has been doing against the church and how he has offended the very God that he was seeking to obey. And friends, not only is Saul an unlikely convert because of all the atrocities he's committed against the Christians, so are we. We were blind. We were dead. We were enemies of God. We were hostile to God. 2 Corinthians 4, and verses 4 through 6, here's what it says. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My friend, just three quick points of application at this point. 
be real brief here. Number one, salvation is always by grace. <laughs> it's always by grace. God's undeserving pursuit of vile sinners to reconcile them to himself through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. This is what he does. And he does it through his amazing grace. God would save wretches like us. Secondly, all conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. True salvation involves amazing grace, but also a life-changing encounter with Christ. Some are dramatic, like Saul's or uh, the Philippian jailer. If you remember that story in Acts 16, I mean, there's, there's earthquakes and there's doors flying open and there's chains that are falling off and he's so distraught because of the fact that he's going to be executed, that he's ready to fall on his sword and told not to do it. What must I do? And he ends up getting on this big, huge, dramatic thing, right? And then others are quiet, like Lydia, who just hears the testimony of the gospel. And her heart is already prepared. The Lord draws her to himself. But all conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Last, all conversions involve submission to Jesus. Friends, here's the truth. Saul is the likeliest Christian. You are the unlikeliest Christian. I am the unlikeliest Christian. And friends, what in the world is less likely than to be made alive when we were dead? See, I don't think we always remember our condition before Christ if we're a believer today. We were enemies, we were dead, we were opposed, we were alienated. All these words describe the truth of our situation before Christ. An unlikely conversion. Secondly, an unlikely commission. Now, keeping in line with God's sovereign orchestration and bringing people to himself, we are introduced to a disciple whom God has chosen to minister to Saul. His name is Ananias. Now, he's not the Ananias of Acts chapter 5, of course, because he's dead, right? He's the one that lied to the Holy Spirit. This Ananias, Paul would later say, is a devout follower of the law with a good reputation among the people. He's a Christian. In verse 10, we're told, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This Ananias will both receive a vision as well as perform a duty for the Lord. But what's interesting about this section of Scripture in Luke's account here in chapter 9 is that Paul is passive. He doesn't say anything. He, he's just there. But it's what God says in his interaction with Ananias that, that helps us understand the commission that ultimately Ananias will, will relay to Saul that God has for him. So Ananias, first of all, receives a vision. We have divine instructions that are given. As Ananias is going about his own business and God speaks to him in a vision, and he says, the Lord says, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and of course he says, here, here I, I am, Lord. His response is one of humility and readiness. And just pause there. That's something that should always be true for us. God is asking us through his word, maybe in the context of church, maybe in your own devotions, he's, he's hitting you between the eyes with something. A response of humility and readiness should be true of us. 
verse 10, uh, verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he sees in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So by God's design, Saul is waiting for Ananias because he has seen him in this vision. And so the Lord instructs Ananias to go to a specific place, the house of Judas on the street called Straight. Uh, he tells him to go to a specific person, Saul of Tarsus. And he tells him to go to a spe- for a specific purpose, to heal Saul and his blindness. These are the instructions that are given. But then we have this understandable fear that is expressed. Now, if you were Ananias, you would, I'm sure you would respond in this way. You actually might respond uh, in a worse way by saying, no, I am not going to (laughs) go to this guy, right? And so we see here is Ananias is respectfully reluctant, right? And I'm sure we would be too. And he has good reason. And just let's read it for again on a human level. Just, just hear what he says. Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I mean, he is the talk of Damascus, in particular the Damascus Christians. There's this guy who's coming out to get us. And here's how he does it. All right. Secondly, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And so the, the reputation and the news of, of his behavior and his activity is is it's on the news, right? It's on Facebook, it's on Twitter. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So I've heard about a man, I've heard about his evil, and I've heard about his authority, and he worries, God, why would you send me to this evil monster? It's understandable, isn't it? Now, three words words that are frightening to anyone are evil, Man with authority. Right? I mean, they are. You could say evil man or woman with authority, right? The world is full of evil men or women who are in places of authority, who are doing all they can to oppose God's church and the spread of the gospel. When when Ed was up here beginning our service, he was just talking about identity and how in the schools there's this challenge against God's design. And it's being promoted by people who are opposed to God, right? And that's that same thing. So we find it in our schools. We find it in our government. We find it in our businesses. We find it in our sports teams. We find it in our entertainment. We find it in our news media. We even find it in our churches, right? Evil men or women in places of authority that are opposed to the things of God. They seem so powerful, don't they? Because they're all championing themselves. But hear this, they are not outside the realm of God's transforming grace. Why is it that Ed, when he prayed today, prayed for our country's leadership? Why is it we pray for the salvation of our president or our vice president or cabinet members and things like that? Because we believe that God can and that according to his will, he does. And we want to see in the, those lives, I'm going to say, a, a, a you know, Paul on Damascus Road experience for them. As they're going, doing their, if you want to say, evil, God comes along and slaps them silly with the gospel and they wake up. We want to pray for that. God can do that. God does that. 
So we've seen a divine instruction given. We've seen an understandable fear is expressed. And then God now gives a divine reason. He explains it. The Lord, here understanding Ananias' fears, responds with clarity. Let me just pause here. Clarity is a good thing, isn't it? You're going through a trial. You're kind of in the fog. It's good to be able to kind of come up out of that fog and remind yourself. And these are very, very general truths, but they're helpful, aren't they? That God is always in control of what you're going through. That God is always at work accomplishing his purposes, no matter what you might think is going on. Those are, those are things that give us some clarity. They're not specifics, but they're there to help us say, you know what? I can have some hope. I can, I can calm my heart and I can keep my focus because I've been given some clarity. Well, here's the clarity he gives. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There's three things, really, he says there, right? He is a chosen instrument. He's a vessel that God has chosen for a specific function to perform a specific duty. The Lord could have chosen Peter, or Philip, or any of the other apostles for this task, but he has chosen Saul. God has a plan and a purpose with Saul. God, he is God's chosen instrument. But he's also a Gentile, given a Gentile commission. Right, Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. It says kings as well as Israel. But primarily, he's seeing Saul as the key man for the gospel to spread into Gentile territories. That's the idea that's going on here. And we'll see that whole expansion of the Gentiles begin in Acts chapter 13 onwards. And then he will experience a ministry of suffering. Just think about this. He's my chosen man to the Gentiles who will suffer. There's a wonderful commission for you. Oh, he's my chosen man. Woohoo, yes, look at me. I'm his chosen man. Right? To the Gentiles. Oh, yeah, there's more Gentiles than there are Jews. Great. And you will suffer. <laughs> and as we go through Acts, we'll see that Saul will suffer. Just review this list with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read it, but just this is Paul reflecting now. Labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, Danger from false brothers. This sounds like a broken record, right? I mean, it's just the same thing, right? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered serving Jesus in this commission. He models what it says in Galatians 2.20 that we had at the beginning today. I have been crucified with Christ. Suffered. John Calvin rightly says, 
this verse shows us that nobody is fit to preach the gospel in a hostile world unless his mind has been prepared for suffering. Therefore, if we are to prove ourselves faithful as ministers of Christ, not only must we ask him for the spirit of knowledge and wisdom, but also for the spirit of steadfastness and courage so that we may never be broken by desperate suffering, for it is the lot of the godly. This is true for any believer who is rightly convinced that God has called them to be faithful to witness the truth of the gospel. Because when you do that, even Jesus said, you will suffer what? Persecution. So this ministry of suffering is not unique to Paul. It might be unique in the sense of that he, you know, this is kind of extreme. I've never hardly been on a boat, right? And I haven't been shipwrecked, all this stuff. But Serving the Lord will come with its own challenges and difficulties and suffering. This is what Paul is going to be experiencing, but this is the commission, friends. Now hear this, only God can take his fiercest enemies and make them the most committed servants. Only God can break down the dividing wall between those things that have separated the Jews and the Gentiles. Only God can so completely transform someone like Saul or you or me. This was Ananias now receiving these instructions. And so he's now to go to to Saul and he's to, to share these instructions. So now we move to Ananias as he ministers to Saul. Having heard his instructions, he now departs to find Saul. And I want you to notice how he greets Saul. He the first words out of his mouth are Brother Saul. <laughs> Now, first of all, something has to happen with Ananias to be able to say that. (laughs) Here is the one who's been persecuting the church. And we're not talking about, well, I don't think you can meet today. You have to close your church doors. No, we're talking about dragging people off and having them killed. And because God has communicated to him, I want you to go and I want you to share this commission with Saul. Ananias is now convinced in his heart and mind that what? Saul is now what? A brother in Christ. So this must have been some sweet words for Paul to hear while he is in this house, Judas's house, on the straight street, waiting for Ananias to come, wondering what was going to happen to him. The first words he hears our brother Saul. Friends, this is what Christ can do. He can turn enemies and persecutors into sisters and brothers. The person you once feared has now become your friend. But as we'll see as this chapter unfolds, we'll see it next week, it takes the church some convincing. Friends, if the ravaging, blood-stained persecutor can become a meek and humbled brother as Saul is here, then nobody is safe from God's amazing grace. You see, no matter how violently opposed someone has been to the gospel, an Islamic jihadist, a communistic atheistic professor, a brutal prison torturer of of Christian inmates, God's grace is greater than you and I can even imagine. And God's grace is on the prowl. I think we often see life through the lens of fear. 
that sees Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's like, oh, what's going to happen now? And what we need to remember that is true, we need to remember who controls the roaring lion. You see, what is on the prowl is the amazing grace of God. Yes, God describes Satan as a roaring lion who's seeking whom he may devour. But he's also describing for us here in the book of Acts that his gospel is on the move. And it's affecting lives. And it's affecting people that you would not imagine would be converted. So God is on the move. He's at work. He's bringing his will to pass. And it may come through hardship, it may come through suffering, but what God has determined, what he has ordained to happen, will take place. That's the greeting. Now the message. And the message is very, very simple. Regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul's recollection of this, these events in chapter 22 really fill in the details. This is Acts 22 verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read them. Just see for yourself how they fill in the gaps here. Ananias came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him and said, the God of our, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. John Calvin insightfully says this about our text. God's wonderful hand was openly shown, not only in such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also in his assuming the character of a shepherd. Friends, this is good. Let me tell you why it's good. It was amazing grace that saved a wretch like Saul, just as it's an amazing grace that, 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 that saves a wretch like you and me. But it was also an amazing grace that gave Saul purpose to be a shepherd of the very same sheep he was once persecuting. All right, the, the wolf who's trying to come into the sheepfold and devour the sheep now becomes the protector of those sheep. He's to be their defender, their protector, their teacher, their counselor. The truth of the matter is now for Paul, he is a, or Saul, I should say, he's a new man. He has a new life. He has, serves a new master. He belongs to a new family. He is gaining a new understanding. He has been commissioned with a new purpose. All of this by God's sovereign design. That's the unlikely commission, that God not only would save Saul, but that God would commission him to be a shepherd of his people. It's amazing. It's not how you and I would plan it. Now we want to talk a little bit about an unlikely confession. As a result of God's sovereign grace, Saul is an unlikely Christian with an unlikely commission, and it is evidenced now through the rest of the book of Acts and in his epistles that he has an unlikely confession. In other words, he is a witness for Christ and gives his testimony. 
I want you to notice, first of all, his confession before the Jews. This is actually in Acts 22 that I've referenced a couple of times. And in that account, Paul is standing before an angry Jewish mob, and he tells the testimony of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. He talks all about the fact that, that he was a persecutor of these Christians and that he, he got the authority from the, the chief priests and those that were part of the leadership of, uh, of Judaism. And he was going to Damascus and he was having this paper so that he can bring back all these followers of the way and he could throw them into prison, have them killed. But while he was on the road, he saw a bright light and he heard a voice and it was the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that the voice told him that he would be a witness to everyone to the, about the righteous one. And the Lord said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And what's interesting in this story, as soon as he mentions taking this new gospel to the Gentiles, that is when these Jews got upset. When they heard the Gentile bit, They were incensed, we're told, and they cried out for his death, saying, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. They were okay up until that point. And it just tells you the the tension and the the division between Jews and Gentiles that was present in that day. We got a glimpse of it last week, didn't we? With the Ethiopian who was only allowed to go so far, could only do so much. This is a confession before the Jews, and they are incensed. They reject what he said. Confession before Agrippa, Acts chapter 26. The Apostle Paul stands before the king as well as Festus, the, the, the Gentile representative there, to give witness to both his own conversion and the truth of the gospel that has been spread across the territory. And he confesses this, beginning at verse 22 of Acts 26. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, so that I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. There's a powerful statement, right? That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Again, speaking to Agrippa, the Jewish leader, and Festus, the Gentile representative, you see what he's probably saying to our people, he's looking at Agrippa, and then to the Gentiles, he's looking at Festus, right? And as King Agrippa hears Paul's testimony, he says, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian? He was challenging Paul. In fact, what, 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 what Paul was doing at that point was really with the gospel, putting uh, Agrippa kind of in a, in a public corner, and Agrippa was not willing to, to be humble at that point in time. Although in his heart he may have felt a certain thing, he was in a public situation that he felt difficult to actually say anything more. And what we have here, I think, is, is Agrippa kind of deflecting what Paul is saying, but not willing to come out and embrace it. Paul argued his case well, and Agrippa pushed back. There was intrigue, but he's not convinced. So here we have two unlikely confessions. But then we also have then Paul's confession to the church. And I could say, let's read the epistles, right? I mean, that's, that's, we don't have time for that this morning. There's lots of passages we could go to, but I want to choose two. And, and I'm not going to make too much commentary on them. I'm just going to read them. 
and let his words be his own kind of testimony here. So 1 Corinthians 15, of course, which is that passage about the resurrection and all the different people that have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And it picks up here having listed all these different people. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, talking about himself and his own conversion, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's not a Popeye statement, okay? What he's saying there is, I, I, am, I am now who I am because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And his grace toward me was not in vain, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Again, this is, this is testimony about his conversion and the fruit of that in his life. He's saying the only reason that I have been able to do these things is because God came and changed me by his grace. And then 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 12 through 17, Paul describes God's grace and mercy in his salvation. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. See how he's referring back to this, this whole encounter? But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. What's interesting here is you have this kind of benediction at the end here in the middle of a letter. <laughs> what he's saying is so powerful that he kind of ties it up here. That, look, this is, this is what happened to me. This is what I was. And this is who I am now. And this is why God wanted to use me as an example and ultimately to be an encouragement to the rest of the body of Christ to embrace the gospel, to live the gospel, to grow, and to speak of the gospel. So for Paul, it's all going back to this conversion experience. All the things that he's saying, all his theology, all of his arguments are going back to this radical change that took place in him. He was blind, but now he can see. He was an enemy, now he's a friend and a champion for the good news of Jesus Christ. Now let's just bring all this to a close. Friends, Saul is a most unlikely Christian. So are you, and so am I. And I want us to contemplate three great and important truths that just flow out of this text, things that you already know, but I want to highlight them. Number one, God is always at work drawing people to himself. Always. 
I just tried to think how we could visualize that. Have you ever been to like a, a, a lake, in particular in the morning when it's still and it starts to rain a little bit and each, each drop of rain is causing a little, little ripple and you have all these ripples that are rippling against. This is, again, this is, this is God at work in the world, right? His gospel, the seed of his gospel is, is coming and it's landing on hearts and people are embracing it and the ripple of that effect is happening in their lives. All of us are kind of there at work. This is just constant. God is actively at work drawing people to himself. We go out, you know, some churches have a sign in the back, you know, you're entering the mission field. I think we go out and we're like, ah, you know, as opposed to we go out and say, God's at work. <laughs> I can't, I can't see it, but I believe it. Or do we believe it, right? But we should. He is at work. He is in the business of drawing people to himself, and he's always at work orchestrating things, doing things, accomplishing things, and we get to be a part of that. Secondly, so I call it gospel movement. Number two, God is in the business of using his people as instruments to proclaim, explain, Disciple those who are coming to Christ. So God is at work, but God in his wisdom chooses to use us to be the vehicles through which he is accomplishing his purposes. And we are called to proclaim, to explain, and to disciple those who are coming to Christ. So we have gospel movement, gospel instruments. So you you didn't realize that maybe you have a responsibility. You have a purpose. Not just, okay, I'm saved. I'm in. It's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful grace. But now I have been given a responsibility that I'm to flesh out wherever God has placed me. Number three, God can, and maybe underline can, save the most unlikely individual and make him or her a Christian. Do you believe that? Is that how you pray? Is that how you interact? Is that how you encourage? See, with these truths in mind, I want to encourage you, look at your boss differently. Read or listen to the news about your country's leaders differently. Interact with that professor differently. Talk to that Muslim neighbor differently. Greet that liberal atheist of a coworker differently. Speak to your children differently. Pray for your spouse differently. Because you never know whose heart God has been preparing for the seed of the gospel that will come from your lips, from your witness, from your testimony. And by God's grace, that person will be another of God's most unlikely converts. (laughs) He's at work. Be willing to be used and trust that he's going to accomplish his purposes. Lord, help us today. Lord, the example of Paul is so rich for us. When we think about how vile of a man he was, 
not just shaking his fist against you, but actively in pursuit of gathering your followers and committing them to death. Or what a horrible man, we would say. What a vile person. What evil is all about who he is and what he does. And yet your amazing grace in a moment can wake a person like that up out of their darkness, out of their bondage, out of their enemy status, and bow their knee before you and experience an amazing grace and take on an amazing responsibility as a child of God to live for you and to serve you. And so, Lord, even as our culture, with, with, with all of its secularism and all of its philosophies that are somehow just banging away against the gospel, we can be so fearful, Lord. Help us to, to know that you are powerful, that you are always at work, and yet you desire to work your will through individuals like us. And you'll be drawing people to yourself, Lord. Give us, give us hearts and mouths, Lord, that are open, willing to speak, willing to suffer for the sake of your gospel. We ask, Lord, in, this pre- in your precious holy name. Amen.